The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by David Waring. We'll be talking about the strategic and economic relationship between the UK and the states of the Arabian Gulf, the role of Britain in Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen, and the role of the West in the emergence of monarchical authoritarian rule in the region. As always, you can listen to PTO on SoundCloud, iTunes, Acast and all other good podcast applications. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. If you've been enjoying PTO, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you really like the show, please think about supporting it via Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. David Waring is a teaching fellow in international relations at Royal Holloway University of London, where he lectures on US foreign policy and the political economy of the Middle East. He's contributed comment and analysis for the BBC, Sky News, The Guardian and CNN, amongst other venues. And he's the author of Anglo-Arabia, Why Gulf Wealth Matters to Britain, which is out now from Polity Press. So in your book, you argue that Britain's current relationship with Saudi Arabia and the other authoritarian monarchies of the Arabian Gulf is really sort of structured by Britain's imperial past. And, um, you know, I think there's a sort of a received wisdom that, that we see reflected in the UK media, that there's a sort of uh, a fairly neat dividing line between the imperial era and, and the post-colonial period following World War II. Although it's never really sort of clear where that line is drawn, because media discussion of World War II often seems to present the United Kingdom as, as the actor in, in, in the conflict rather than the British Empire. But you argue that there's, there's far more continuity between, between those two periods. So could you could you talk a bit about how Britain's role in the Gulf going back uh, to the 18th century, um, how that, that role continues to inform current relations between Britain and the states of, of the Gulf? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, this thing you say about a hard dividing line, if you look at the history, yeah, I mean, it's impossible. To, you, you can find key moments. Um, but what you see is the is the relationship evolving and, uh, and, and, and changing, but quite a few fundamentals remaining in place and a hard dividing line is, is really, really difficult to discern. I mean, there basically isn't one. The relationship has changed a lot, but it has been a process of evolution. Um, so Britain sort of pops up in the Gulf in the early 1800s. And at that point, the key sort of strategic interest is protection of Britain's Indian Empire subcontinent and creating a kind of buffer zone um, through Central Asia, into um, Persia, and into the Gulf to protect the subcontinent from Russia and from France. 
So, so, so at this point, carbon reserves aren't particularly on the radar in terms of uh, strategic interests. Not at all. Not at, not at all. That, that's right. Not at all. So this is the early 1800s. Um, I mean, it, it, Britain's initial interest in the Persian Gulf arises when Napoleon invades Egypt. So that's late 1700s. Um, so Britain. In the early 1800s, 1830s, 40s, 50s, increasingly starts to build up its presence in the Persian Gulf. It um, develops relationships with the sort of kings and emirs of places like um, Kuwait, Qatar, uh, Bahrain, um, the Emirates that now form the United Arab Emirates, uh, Sultan of Muscat. And one by one, it creates relationships with each of them, sort of treaty relationships, where, which treaties basically say, we, the British, will guarantee your security, as it were, i.e. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll help prop you up sort of thing with our naval power. And you will have no foreign relations with anyone but us. So your foreign relations will go through us, as it were. So these states, through these tr- sort of crucial relationships, these states become uh, dependencies on the, on the British. And the British have this kind of hegemony within the, within the Persian Gulf, within the Gulf. And yeah, this develops through the, through, the, through the 19th century, and then at the turn of the sort of 19th, 20th century, this is when oil starts to become more of a sort of, um, you know, a, a serious strategic prize, as it were. The British Navy switches from coal to oil, which is a big, big move. Um, in strategic terms, big strategic implications for that, because obviously Britain has its own coal reserves, but at the time anyway, it didn't have its own oil reserves. So that's a big move. You know, this Churchill actually do, do makes this decision. And obviously, if your military power, if the way this island Britain conquered the world is through naval power, if your imperial power is based on naval power and your naval power is based on a energy source which you don't yourself have domestically, that's a big strategic gamble. And it becomes, obviously, so at that point, Britain, knowing that a lot of the world's oil reserves are in the Gulf region, starts to have a really, really major interest in, in Gulf oil. And as the 20th century develops, we go through the sort of interwar years in particular, increasingly we find that it's not just in southern Iran and in Iraq, but it's right the way through the Gulf that you find just tons and tons of, of large and readily accessible um, oil reserves. And by the time you get to the end of the, the end of the Second World War, it's become absolutely clear that oil is the lifeblood of the industrialised world economy. Um, it's a huge strategic resource. Battles for oil reserves were really important in World War One and World War Two. Um, it's a huge material prize, obviously, because um, if British and American oil firms are in charge of extracting this stuff and selling it, they're like huge amounts of money. Um, but it's also a strategic prize because Britain's energy dependent, um, dependent on sorry, energy import dependent, and um, because basically whoever controls this oil controls, you know, it has a really is in a really powerful position in terms of the structure of the global political economy. So it's really, to put it this way, if the Soviet Union had been sitting on top of those oil reserves rather than the British and the Americans in the post-war era, um, the Cold War would have played out differently. So so Britain and America have this, so Britain's sort of a dominant power in the Middle East, but it's waning after World War II. The Americans are on the rise. And the key interest for the British and the Americans is to ensure that these major, major oil reserves of the Persian Gulf, this huge strategic and material price, is um, is locked down, and that the 
the regimes that sit on top of these reserves are client regimes of the British and the Americans. And also the oil wealth economically um, works to the benefit of the British and the Americans as well. So that's where we are in the in the post-war era. And then Britain starts getting gradually shoved out, eased out of the Middle East. And this is largely as a result of, of local nationalisms, um, particularly Nasserism, classic example is the Suez crisis. But all the way through um, the 50s and the 60s, the British are struggling more and more to hang on to that part of the world. They're kicked out of Egypt, they're kicked out of Iraq, they're kicked out of Aden. And by 1971, after the sort of umpteenth currency crisis in 67, the British decide that they're going to pull out of what they call east of Suez. We'll no longer have a permanent military presence in the world east of the Suez Canal because projecting power to places like, projecting power to places like Singapore and the Persian Gulf is too expensive and too hard for us. We can no longer do it. And, and this was over the opposition of the Americans, right, who actually wanted us to continue to perform that role? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was about to say. Um, this is, you know, the Americans objected to it because, you know, their view is like, look, we're kind of tied down with Vietnam here at the moment. Your job was supposed to be looking after this part of the world on behalf of the West and the, you know, the capitalist bloc. And we need you to be pulling your way. And not only did the Americans not like it, I mean, there's a lot of Anglo-American rivalry as well um, over, you know, who's in the ascendant in the Middle East. But it's it, they're kind of like frenemies. Do you know what I mean? They're like they're jostling for position, just, but jostling for position within a broader understanding that the West needs to be in the ascendant. But it's not just the Americans who don't like it. It's the Gulf regimes themselves. Apparently the Gulf regimes were panicked by this because it had been the British who had been protecting them from their own populations. You know, it had been the British who had been their security guarantor against local nationalism. I mean, Arab nationalism was a powerful force throughout the Gulf, particularly in Bahrain. It was a, um, it was a preoccupation of the Saudi regime as well. I mean, the Saudis were more closely tied to the, Amer- to the Americans, while the small Gulf monarchies were most, more closely tied to the British at that time. But even, even the Saudis didn't like the idea of the British pulling out um, because of the fear that you know, the, the, the fear of, um, of the you know, nationalist threat and the threat from below. And so you, you talked earlier about a hard dividing line and how it doesn't really exist. If there's a hard dividing line, it's, you would expect it to be here, where the British say we're going to withdraw from east of Suez. We'll no longer have a permanent military presence um, east of Suez and in the Persian Gulf. But what actually happens is that while the British are no longer acting as the formal protector, so the regimes, you know, Kuwait, um, Qatar, Bahrain, the Emirates become the UAE, Oman. While they're no longer formal protectorates of the British, the British are still fundamentally there in that British advisors, quote-unquote, are in all these governments, you know, overseeing their foreign policy, overseeing their security policy, their economic policy. And the British are still arming and training the local security forces to insulate the regimes from any threats from below. Um, so, yeah, the British are still pretty much there. And that's, this is the point where we evolve into the modern relationship, because it's just after this supposed withdrawal, which is not so much of a withdrawal, it's just after that that the oil crisis happens. So um, the oil-producing states are taking control of their own oil reserves, they jack the price up in the early 70s, they suddenly become flush with cash, uh, what we call petrodollars. And at that point, the new the relationship that we know now take hold, takes hold, where... 
the Gulf regimes are accumulating these petrodollars and then spending it on British arms, American arms, on British and American goods and services, and whatever's left over, which is quite a lot, they're investing in, in the British and American economy, particularly in the financial industry. Um, so you can see how, and, and, and in exchange for that, they're continuing to get the, the protection of the British and the Americans, and the British and Americans are continuing to get the benefit of, the strategic benefit of projecting power into the Middle East and cultivating alliances there. And that's where we are today. The where the dividing line comes between imperialism and today is really hard to discern. You can say where the relationship shifts at different historical junctures, and you can see how it evolves. But it's not like there was imperialism and now there is no more imperial. There's there no longer imperialism. Um, you know, we've transitioned out to those of formal empire, but the fundamental hierarchies, the fundamental drivers of policy in the West, in Britain in particular. Um, are pretty much still there, just adapting to changing circumstances. I mean, that that point on the Americans is interesting, isn't it? Because obviously, the the sort of the self perception of uh, the American media and political class is that the United States was always very firmly opposed to uh, to colonialism. And I suppose there's an interesting parallel in a situation in in Vietnam, where again, you you have the Americans effectively shoring up uh, French imperialism for a time before it becomes an untenable situation, and and America takes on an increasingly dominant role in that region. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, we had the um, we had the anniversary recently of the um, so-called Suez Crisis, which is better described as the, the way the people in the Middle East describe it as a tripartite aggression, where the British and, the, British and French and the Israelis attack Egypt after Egypt nationalises the Suez Canal. And what's interesting about that period is that the Americans often portrayed themselves as, you know, we're the anti-colonial people who believe in self-determination, you know, and the bad old Europeans are still behaving like imperial powers. But really, the disagreement was over tactics. The disagreement was over, um, you know, do you invade Egypt or do you just try to undermine or co-opt Arab nationalism? But fundamentally, you know, there's an agreement with the um, Western power needs to project itself into the Middle East and that independent nationalism is a threat to all that. Um, yeah, I mean, the Americans approach imperialism differently, tactically and differently rhetorically. But... It's fundamentally the same project. So, I mean, you've, you've touched on this a little bit, but the relationship between the West and the Gulf states is often portrayed in this very, these very sort of Orientalist terms, whereby the West encounters these supposedly very, very ancient, long-standing social systems that are portrayed as having very different values to the West, whereas, whereas you contend that the, the alliance of, of monarchical rule and religious authoritarianism that we, that we see in the Gulf today emerge very, very much due to the role of, of Britain and, and latterly the United States. Um, is, is that a, a correct reading of what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think this is this is really important. It's something I've developed a bit in the book, but I think it's something I'm really going to start, well, it's something I've started to work on um, for you know, following work from the next book. Um, I mean, if you, if you think about how democracy developed in this country, 
and put aside the kind of liberal establishment Whiggish version of history and look at what actually happened. Uh, democracy, to the extent that we have it, and you know, civil liberties, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in this country, didn't just sort of emanate out of the soil of Britain because we're just, you know, an inherently free and uh, you know liberal country. It, it was a product of social contestation. Like some British people fought other British people to win certain rights, and you know there were forces within uh, the British polity which fought bitterly to resist all that. Um, so it emerged out of a process of social contestation, the charters and the suffragettes and trade unionists and so on. Um, and that's the way it always works out. It's not an inherent cultural thing. Right? So to return to the, to the Middle East, there have always been forces within the Middle East who have been fighting for some kind of autonomy, um, independence, uh, greater freedom, greater scope for human beings to live their lives as they see fit. We've seen that in Arab nationalism. We've seen that in powerful trade union movement in Egypt. We see it today with human rights defenders um, like the Al Khawajas in in, um, in Bahrain, um, with mass movements across the region calling for democracy. And the forces in that part of the world who have bitterly opposed those who are calling for democracy and human rights and all the rest of it, the, the authoritarian forces in that part of the world have had a huge amount of help in suppressing those forces, help from the British and the Americans who have provided them with arms, who have provided them with training for their security forces, who have set, helped them set up the whole apparatus of repression uh, and torture. So forces of authoritarianism in the Middle East have had the, the scales kind of rigged in their favour, as it were. So those processes of social contestation which produced democracy in the West um, haven't gone in the same direction in the Middle East, but not because of some inherent culture, but because of the way the contest was um, was rigged to a large extent in, in favour of those authoritarian regimes. So, and then you look at the way this is actually discussed um, in the West. All this is 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 um, is obscured in, in in the way we the sort of dominant discourse frames. Um, the relationship between Britain, say, and Saudi Arabia, where, you know, we have our values and they have theirs. It's a different culture. Um, I use a few quotes in my book from uh, select committee hearings that were held after their uprisings, where diplomats and state officials would go in front of these select committees and to justify the fact that Britain was supporting these regimes, they would be saying things like, oh, well, you must understand the Saudis and have a very different culture. And actually the Saudi regime is um, is uh, is on the liberal edge of a conservative polity. And I just think it's a, it's a bit rich of the, Brit, of the British to spend all these decades supporting the most authoritarian elements within these societies. And then when questioned on it now to say, oh, well, you know, it's just what, what can That's you what do? Like. what these people are like. <laughs> it's, it's, their, it's their culture. You know, it's, it's really, really, it's really cheeky. Um, but I think they believe it. I think they believe it. This is the thing. I mean, this is this is a dominant ideology in the West, you know, this sense of... Um, us being the good guys and us being the forces for, you know, liberalism and democracy and them, this racialized other in the Middle East being just inherently backward. I mean, this is, this is sincerely believed and it's a really important part of how all this fits together. It's not just a veneer and it's not just a story that people make up consciously. It's, you know, it's, the ideological component is really, really important. Do you, I mean, on that, do, do, do you think there may even be um, something going on where 
where they almost perceive that the view they're taking is in fact quite a, a liberal or, or even almost a woke view. You know that that they're you know saying, oh, we should respect diversity. You know these these people have different values. We should we should yeah. we should respect yeah. respect that. And obviously, there's always been that critique of of socialism from the perspective of you know there's a, there's a sort of tyranny in the, in a universal perspective of that kind. I think that's absolutely right. I think that that is appealed to often. Like we have to respect their culture, which is it, it's it's an awful move, and I don't really think it's a conscious one. But still, it's you know the the move comes in in two steps, doesn't it? First, you you obscure the role you've played in rigging social contestation in these parts of the world, so that the authoritarians win out against their own people. And then you say, oh, well, it's just part of their culture. You know, it's just their inherent culture, nothing to do with us. And then you say, and we have to respect that, you know. And if you, anyone who argues that Britain should stop arming Saudi Arabia and stop training its security forces and stop continuing to, you know, uphold these systems of torture and repression is being disrespectful to the Saudis and maybe even racist at some level. It's astonishing the contortions that this discourse um, can go through. I mean, really, I think the argument is Britain should st- and, and America should stop, stop helping authoritarian forces in these societies um, acting as obstacles to processes of social contestation. It's simply a question of the British and the Americans withdrawing that support and letting things play out in the region um, without this kind of interference. That's all it, all it really is. But I think the difficulty that people have when people in the liberal establishment, people who are absolutely sort of dedicated to this view that the West is inherently benign and the West is a force for good in the world, they, have, they struggle to compute the idea that we're the problem. You know, So when you say you're in favour of democracy and, and what have you in, in the Middle East. People think you're demanding that Britain play a proactive role in promoting it. And it's not its not really that. It's more, let's stop helping the worst people in that, that part of the world prevent those things from happening. Let's just pull back and let people in that part of the world work things out for themselves. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that ideology does, does, does a hell of a lot of work. Um, you know, I mean, in Saudi Arabia, just to look at the Saudi case in particular, to talk about Saudi as this kind of ancient culture. I mean, the Saudi kingdom's less than 100 years old. And the reason it exists is because the House of Saud and its kind of armed um, militia who were you know, working with it burst out of the Central Arabian Desert in the early 20th century, conquered as much of the Arabian Peninsula as they could and imposed their minority, austere um, interpretation of Islam on the diverse populations of the territory that they conquered. You know, they imposed it on the more cosmopolitan and liberal uh, west of the country. They imposed it on the um, more predominantly Shia uh, northeast of the country. And their rule was quite their style of rule and their social mores that they were imposing were, were pretty unfamiliar to a lot of people, and they didn't like it. You know, and the reason one of the reasons they were able to successfully do that to impose themselves on this on this territory was because the British helped them. You know, in, there were crucial moments where the British were providing arms so that the Saudis could, could consolidate their rule, and then the Americans come in, and then we know the rest of the of the history. But you know, to say after all that that 
the nature of Saudi um, society today is just a product of ancient culture. It's, I mean, it's just nonsense. It's historical nonsense. It takes the um, religious fundamentalists at their word, doesn't it, in in the suggestion yeah, that yeah, they yeah, are yeah. sort of returning to ancient Islam as it once was, whereas, I mean, you know, the writers like Karen Armstrong um, talk about how Islamic fundamentalism is is, is absolutely a, a product of, of modernity and a product of the encounter with, with the West. Mm. I mean, there's a, there's a danger of looking at a particular brand of Islam that the Saudis have imposed as the epitome of Islam, whereas there is no real epitome, there is no sort of true Islam or epitome of Islam anywhere, any more than there is of Christianity or anything else. All these things are fluid, all these things are socially contested. And, you know, I think what's interesting to focus on is the role that Britain and British power have played in intervening in those in those contestations and intervening in these dynamics and doing so in a way which is really, really sharply at odds with the self-image of the British elite as being a force for liberalism and democracy and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, they've been the opposite of that, if anything, and, and, and continue to be right up to now. On the question of oil and gas reserves of, of the region, I mean, as, you, as you'll know, there's a sort of politically quite unsophisticated story that you, you sometimes hear on, on parts of the left, which gets told about Western interests in the region, which, you know, talks about it very narrowly in terms of the need to acquire access to the to the oil and gas reserves of of, of the region for for the for the needs of of western capital um and cl- you know clearly that's that's a view that can be quite easily rebutted since uh, i mean as as you point out in your book um the, the uk for instance doesn't particularly rely heavily on gulf supplies for for power generation or for or for industry um since since that's the case could could you explain why uh western control of the region is so critically important um if it's not just the narrow issue of of access to to carbon reserves yeah yeah so you're exactly right the kind of reflexive view is the um, we're trying to get their oil for our own use, and yeah, and, and yeah, that's not true. I mean, Britain used to import quite a lot of oil from um, from the Middle East, but it's, it hardly imports any oil from the Middle East, and indeed, it's only narrowly a net oil importer. Imports a bit of gas from Qatar. Um, it's not an insignificant amount. Um, but again, you know, oil import, uh, gas imports aren't the totality of Britain's gas use. So, yeah, supply from that part of the world isn't massively important to the UK, and it's certainly not, um, certainly not the main issue. I mean, it, it, it's more about. So we, we've talked a little bit about um, the sort of importance of oil geopolitically, the importance of oil and gas geopolitically. And how if you're sitting on top of those reserves, which are the lifeblood of the world economy, then you have massive structural power in the system. And I think that's that's more a question for the US now. I think it's a bit above Britain's pay grade as a sort of a second tier global power. I don't want to diminish the importance of British power in the world because, um, you know, I think we do that too much. And it's a real analytical misreading of the significance of, of the UK, which is still pretty major. Um, but questions like that, that managing the global structure are really more for the US. Britain supports that. But I think really Britain's more immediate own interest in that part of the world have to do with the wealth that's generated by Gulf oil and gas sales. I mean, most, of this, most of the oil and gas that, um, that is sold from the Gulf actually goes to, to East Asia. So that's where the, we used to call it petrodollar recycling, whereby we buy their oil 
And then the money that we sent them to buy their oil and gas comes back to us in um, arms purchases and investments and purchases of goods and, of goods and services. It's not really recycling now because the money is coming from East Asia to the Gulf to buy their oil and gas. But then that money is moving on, sort of flowing upwards from south to north and coming to us in terms of buying uh, major weapon systems, um, investments in the British economy. Uh, buying goods and services. I think it's it's worth just getting into that a little bit. So if you think about the trajectory that British capitalism has taken, perhaps we'll get onto arms sales in a minute and just, let's just talk about um, how, how the two capitalisms fit together because I think this is really interesting. This is one of the big conclusions I draw in the book. Um, think about the way British capitalism has evolved from the social democratic era between the end of the war and Thatcher coming in and then the neoliberal era since then. As neoliberalism in Britain has seen export industry decline and financial industry, you know, relatively strengthen, strength, strengthen and grow in relative terms, Britain has developed a trade deficit and a, a, a pretty sort of entrenched and growing trade deficit, current account deficit more broadly with the rest of the world. Now, if you have a current account deficit, that puts downward pressure on your currency and what you need in order to square that and ensure that your currency isn't um, isn't isn't pushed down in value is, is attracting it is attracting capital from the rest of the world. So on the one hand, Britain runs a trade deficit, a current account deficit more broadly, but on the other hand, Britain attracts a lot of investment capital from the rest of the world because it's got a financial industry. And Gulf capital plays a big role in that dynamic. Britain imports, Britain's a net import of capital um, from Saudi Arabia um, to a large extent. In one of the years I looked at in the book, I found that capital imports from the Gulf accounted for about 20% of, um, of, of the net total. So it's quite significant. This is what's propping up the pound. You know, it's been, this is a, a big question when the pound's particularly vulnerable in the wake of, uh, in the wake of Brexit. Britain needs to be able to keep importing um, investment capital from the rest of the world, and it's getting a lot of that from from Saudi and the Gulf. What's happened since 2000s and the huge oil price rise that happened in the 2000s up to the middle of this decade, and it's fallen away a bit since then, but big story of the last 20 years is the massive rise in the price of oil, which has been a huge windfall from the Gulf states. They've built up massive, massive sovereign wealth funds. Um, we're talking about you know, trillions of dollars of accumulated sovereign wealth for these for these Gulf states, especially Saudi, Qatar, UAE. So they've got all this money to spend, all this surplus capital. At the same time, Britain's got its current account deficit and it needs to import capital. So you get this kind of symbiosis between the two sides. You know, we, we need capital imports. They've got surplus capital. And this is not just a question of economics. It's, as I said before, the Gulf states knowing that if they can maintain that kind of relationship with us, and there's a similar, slightly similar relationship with the Americans, the British have got a stake in maintaining the status quo in the region. You know, these these guys invest their money in our financial services, and that helps us to square the circle and with regards to some of these out, out, outcomes of neoliberalism and keep the pound stable. And so it's in our interest to maintain that status quo, maintain these regimes who are playing this um, playing this sort of helpful role for us. So there's that aspect of it. Does that effectively mean that for as long as finance remains such a dominant part of the UK economy, 
that relationship is almost certain to maintain. Um, yeah, I mean, there's ways of getting. I think this is one of the things I try and do right at the end of the book is say Britain doesn't have to have this relationship with the Gulf states, but in, in order to change it in order to sort of affect a kind of break with these regimes, there's certain changes that Britain would have to make to its foreign policy strategy and to its economy as well. Um, so, I mean, if Britain was to have a Green New Deal, for example, or any kind of you know, proper industrial strategy that could boost its manufacturing industry, that would close that um, trade deficit, close the current account deficit, obviate the need for these big capital inflows to prop up the pounds, and then that reduces the bargaining power of the Gulf states in their relationship with Britain. I mean, I would still maintain that it's it's a case of asymmetric interdependence between the British and the Gulf states in that both sides need each other for various reasons, but the Gulf states need Britain more than, the, more than Britain needs the Gulf. Um, but you can shift that bargaining power further in Britain's favour to make it easier for Britain to break relations um, or break these particular kind of relations if you've got a thriving export industry that's close to trade deficit and you're less reliant on these capital inflows from the from the Gulf region. Let's talk a little bit about arms exports which are obviously you know typically presented by British uh, the British government and and uh, the relevant parts of British industry as you know absolutely key to to the the British economy and or, or rather it, it's always in terms of, of jobs that this is discussed and, and the importance of these industries to maintaining jobs in the UK uh, what's your view of, of uh, the the significance of uh, of arms exports to the Gulf and what and what role do those exports play internally to the Gulf states so I think that you know in, in this debate, almost the first thing that needs to be stressed, and it's surprising that you have to stress it even on the left, but apparently you do, is that British jobs aren't more important than Yemeni lives, for example. You know, the fact that there's something in it for us it, it is not a good enough reason to be selling arms that are being used to bomb hospitals and schools and homes and, and you know, and all the rest of it in Yemen. Um, and yet, unfortunately, we are sometimes at the level on the left where where we're framing it in those terms. I did an interview on LBC with, uh, what's his name, Kevin Maguire, Daily Mirror guy, and it was really hard to get this point across to him. You know, you, you try and explain it, and he'd still come back to you, oh, but what about the people in the north in these, you know, who've got these industrial jobs? And you're like, it's not that I don't care about them, Kevin, but those jobs are not more important than whether people in Yemen get to live or die. So I think it's really important to, to stress that and re remind people when we have this discussion that these are, this is what's at stake. Now, on top of that, it also has to be pointed out that the extent to which arms exports are important to the British economy is hugely overstated, hugely overstated. Um, so if you take one year, the most significant year probably for British arms sales in the long time, which was 2015, the first year of the Yemen war, when billions of arms were licensed for export to Saudi Arabia. And this was often um, ammunition for the Saudi bombing campaign in Yemen. They, run, they, ran out, they dropped so many bombs and missiles, they ran out or came close to running out, and the British had to replenish their stocks. They didn't have to, but they did. So lots of money was made in that year. Much, much more than was made in previous years. Even in that year, a really extraordinary year, 
total British exports to Saudi, not just arms, but all these other things that Britain exports to Saudi, goods and services and all the rest of it, was a tiny proportion of British total exports worldwide, something like 3%. And maybe arms were about half of that, so like one point something percent. So even on an extraordinarily, um, you know, an, 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 even in an out of the ordinary year for, for arms export revenue to Saudi Arabia, you're still talking about a very, very small percent of Britain's total export um earnings worldwide. So it's not that significant. What British arms exports to Saudi are significant for is not the British economy as a whole, but the British arms industry itself. Now, why might the British arms industry be important? It's important if you want Britain to be a global military power. If you want Britain to continue being a global military power, and we talked earlier about how Britain's transitioned from the days of formal empire to its current posture, basically the strategic priority of the British state since the decline of empire has been to hang on to as much power as possible in the global system. And a big component of that has been maintaining as much military power and relevance as possible by attaching themselves to the United States and being prepared to fight alongside the United States in various interventions and to prop up the US-led kind of military order worldwide through NATO and so on and so forth. So for Britain to be an independent global military power integrated in these wider structures, but still in its own independent global military power to the greatest extent it can be. You need an arms industry. You can't be dependent on other people for your arms and for your military capacity if you're going to be a global military power. So to maintain that arms industry can be pretty expensive, right? Because these things are expensive to produce. How can you make it less expensive? How can you make it less of a tax burden on the public? If it becomes too much of a tax burden on the public, the public will start turning against the whole policy and say, well, we don't care about this stuff. We just want functioning public services and all the rest of it. So to keep the cost of that arms industry down, you export um, some of what you produce. Right. So part of projecting military power worldwide at the moment for a state like Britain is having these advanced military jets that are involved in a lot of British interventions like in Iraq and Syria and, Lib- and Libya uh, recently, um, these Eurofighter typhoons. Now, you can produce them, a fleet of them, for yourself and then, you know, mothball the production line, lay off the workers and all the rest of it. Or, through having an export industry, you can maintain a constant production line, retain those, um, retain those skills, retain those jobs, and use the export revenue to finance that industry to keep it going uh, for your own use as well. And when we look at where Britain gets its export revenue for, um, for arms, increasingly it's coming from the Gulf. So um, there's um, a good graph in my book that shows this. Since the end of the Cold War, the demand for arms globally has, has obviously declined massively, and the Gulf is the Gulf is becoming one of the few remaining thriving export markets for arms sales. Right, so the proportion of British arms sales that go to the Gulf compared to the rest of the world has changed dramatically in the last 25 years to the point where now about half, a little under half, of Britain's total arms exports go to the Gulf, and most of those go to Saudi. So, if you think that Britain being a global military power is important. If you think that the only way you can maintain that domestically, politically and economically is to offset the cost of that with an arms export industry, then you think that the relationship with Saudi Arabia and arms sales to Saudi Arabia is important. That's what it has to do with. It doesn't have anything to do with the, you know, 
with the deep desire of people in, say, the Tory government to ensure that good jobs in the north are maintained as if they ever gave a shit about that. You know, it's about... It's about the strategic question. Well, it, it's it's striking, isn't it? The you know the, they will raise heaven and earth to to protect the arms industry, and and yet let other industries go to the wall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, those claims about you know the deep concern over manufacturing jobs in the Midlands and the North that you hear from, especially conservative ministers, is is it's really hard to take <laughs> given the history. And um, I think the other thing that's worth saying about that is that. It's, it's, it's a question of whether you... A, it's not justifiable to have a military industry that's producing arms that are being used to obliterate people in, in Yemen, create the world's worst humanitarian catastrophe, just massacre people. You know, this is, this, this is how the Saudis use the arms, and this is how the British state has always been happy to have its arms sold and used. So it's not morally tenable to maintain this industry, but also, I mean, it can't be beyond our wit as a country for the people involved in those industries not to be found better and more productive um, work that they can, that they can be doing. Um, if you think about the challenge of climate change, for example, that's the real security threat to, the, to, to Britain and to the world. The real security threat is not something that's going to be fought by Eurofire typhoons. It's something that's going to be fought by renewable technology. And it, it can't be beyond our wit as a country to retrain those people to produce... Um, you know, the green technologies of tomorrow. British, British, if, the, if the British state is going to support an industry and subsidise an industry and underwrite an industry, it might as well be that one rather than the arms industry. So I think, you know, I think the country has, has choices. Um, the other thing worth saying about that, and this ties into the other point I was making about how Saudi capital inflows are important for maintaining British neoliberalism, is the, it's this wider point about climate change, which is we have to do with it in the next 12 years, as, as we keep hearing and recently. We've got to make big changes in the next 10 to 12 years. And one of the big changes is that oil has to stay in the ground to the largest extent possible. So even if you like British neoliberalism and you're happy for British neoliberalism to be sort of maintained in part by Gulf capital inflows, um, without wanting to overstate the importance of that too much. And even if you like British militarism and are happy for British militarism to be propped up by Saudi petrodollars buying British arms, even if you like all that, the reality is that if we're going to, you know, save humanity, frankly, then that oil has to stay in the ground anyway. And the oil, if the oil stays in the ground, then the money dries up and that relationship can't be maintained anyway. So we do have to start thinking of alternatives, not just for the obvious moral reasons, but also because, you know, that, that that's where this is all going. You know, the oil has to stay in the ground, which means the petrodollars are going to dry up, which means this whole the whole basis of the relationship that Britain has with these regimes is going to have to dry up as well. And, you know, it's time now to start thinking about how we adapt to that. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.